Folks, in replace of the normal weekly Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast, this week we're going to bring you a special interview with Jim Ryan, the man who had just been voted the greatest American distance runner in history by the Let's Run.com visitors. That interview is coming up right now. But before we get to that, let me give a plug to our sponsors at thefeed.com. Thefeed.com has it all. Whether you need your basic running supplies, Martin Sports Drink, AeroFit Respiratory Muscle Training Device, PR Lotion, anything you need for running, they've got it. But they've also got some great stuff for, for these crazy COVID-19 times. You need an immunity boosting pack? They've got that. What about BLDG Active? That's their brand new antimicrobial face and hand spray. Check that out. Amazing stuff. Go to thefeed.com slash let's run. Again, thefeed.com slash let's run and save 15% off your entire order. And also, why don't you support Jim Ryan himself? He's got a summer running camp. It's normally for high schoolers, but hey, with COVID-19, they're going to do a virtual camp. There's no age limit. So sign up now. Learn from Jim. Life lessons, running lessons, ryanrunning.com. Go to ryanrunning.com. All right. Here's the interview. Hello and welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. This is your host, Jonathan Galt. I'm going to be joined in a minute by Robert Johnson and a very special guest it is Jim Ryan. He is a former world record holder in the 880 yards, the 1500 meters, the mile. He is an Olympic silver medalist. He is a five-term congressman from Kansas. He is probably the most accomplished guest we've ever had in this show. Jim, it's a pleasure to be joined by you this morning. Jonathan, it's great to be here. Thank you. Johnny forgot to give him his newest accolades. He's been voted the greatest American distance runner in history by the Let's Run.com faithful. So another new honor to your accolades, Jim. It, it is, and I want to thank all of those who voted for me. It was an interesting competition, and quite honestly, you know, I think it reflects on the 1960s and early 70s uh, as a very treasure time in our uh, running history. So uh, thank you for your vote, and here we are. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because we had you in the 60s and the early 70s, and then there was Frank Shorter won the gold medal at Munich in 1972, and he is obviously, uh, you know, one of the best ever in America. Dave Waddle won the 800 meters in Munich in 72, and he had the world record for a little while. So really, I would say that, you know, one of the first golden ages for American distance running. He really, really was, and it was golden in the sense, too, that you had tremendous support from the fans when you went, I mean, and of course... If you reflect on just one portion of track and field, that's the indoor season. You had an indoor meet almost every weekend somewhere. Now you really can't even find indoor meets as well, let alone board tracks. So it's it was a phenomenal time in our history. Yeah, Jim. If so, you were the winner of our bracket. But if you had to choose someone other than yourself to name sort of the greatest of all time, do you have a pick? Oh my! Uh, you know, everyone that was there had obviously the merit to be there. Uh, I, I tend to look at things other than just performance, and this is going to be off the wall for some of your listeners, but I look at uh, sportsmanship as part of this whole thing. And one of the guys who taught me sportsmanship was a friend and a fellow competitor by the name of Jim Grella. And just a little quick reflection on that. Uh, in 1964, at the finish line of the uh, 1500 meters U.S. Olympic trials, I outleaned him and went to the Tokyo Olympics. Frankly, he should have been there. He had the experience. Uh, but our friendship grew from there. Uh, he could have been frustrated and angry, but he developed a relationship with me, and we, to this day, still communicate. 
So to me, that's an aspect of sports. Sometimes it gets set aside as uh, the aspect of sportsmanship, not so much performance, although that's obviously a part of it, but how does a person respond under given circumstances? And so Jim is one of those guys I look back on and see him as a great example of sportsmanship. Well, that's really impressive because it, at the time, you didn't mention you were only 17 years old. So to be out lean by a 17-year-old, it's got to be tough for a sort of veteran like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's one of the things that amazed me. I, you know, I've been doing some research on your career as we had this uh, tournament voting for the greatest American distance runner of all time. And the stuff you were doing at the ages of 19 and 20 was just really, truly phenomenal. And I was curious, like how much pressure was on you because you're running an American record as a high school senior, you're running a world record at the age of 19. Like, do you, do you feel a lot of pressure from media, from fans, from other people like that? Well, I did, but if I can take a little bit of time, Jonathan, and reflect on how it all started. Uh, I was a young boy growing up in Wichita whose only success was failing at everything he tried. Uh, you know, cut from the church baseball team, the junior high basketball team, couldn't make the junior high track and field team. But I remember during those days being church, and I'd go to bed at night, and I'd say, Dear God, I, I, and I'd reflect on my life at that point, and I'd say, Things aren't going well. And I'd appreciate it. I'd raise my hand, so to speak, as I'm going to sleep. If you could show up in sports, I'd appreciate that. So when it did happen, when that answered prayer took place, it was easier to handle a lot of the pressure because I remember what it was like before. And it was a gradual pressure because from the very beginning, uh, people would say, well, I was running too fast. I would burn out. I wouldn't last through high school. I ran too long, too many miles. And so, you know, you adjust to those pressures along the way. And yes, there were pressures, but because they were gradually getting larger and larger, you learn to adjust to them as much as you possibly can. That's not to say that it was a perfect adjustment. They were real. At the same time, I had the perspective of what it was before all of this started, and that helped balance it all in many, many respects. And again, that that prayer, you know, help me, Lord, as this unfolds. And boy, did he ever help, because that was a real challenge during those days. And one of the things, you know, I was looking at your training, you were doing upwards of 100 miles a week sometimes in high school, which which is a lot. And I'm wondering now, you know, if you were training now, people might know you might do an interview on the Internet. People would see all around the country. But back then, you know, you really only had the radio and, and local newspapers and, you know, maybe television, but they might not have been talking about your training on TV. Did you know how much you were doing compared to all of your competitors and other high schoolers around the country? Well, I knew we were working hard and, and enormous amounts, if you will, of volume. Yes, 100 miles a week was a lot in high school. But because of the success that was coming with it, it wasn't hard to justify it. And so that was a big factor in all of this because as you look back on it, the workouts were phenomenal. Uh, but when you have that kind of success, it's very easy to say, well, you know, I, 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 because of the success, I can justify doing what it takes. Do you, do you think, I mean, John says there was a lot, but I think a lot of people back then were running 100 mile weeks, right? I mean, it was more more common than people might think. It's kind of crazy. Like, how would you do that? Was you, were you running twice a day? Oh, yes. We were running twice a day. And let me touch on that just for a second, Robert. As I gradually, actually, as I ran faster and faster, I started being exposed and spending more time with a lot of the older runners, uh, meaning those in their early 20s and, you know, setting American records and they were doing great things. They were running 100-mile weeks as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were 100-mile 100, 100 weeks as well. So it became the norm for those days. If you weren't running consecutive 100-mile weeks for a long period of time, 
yeah, you probably weren't giving your best. At least that's what I thought was. So uh, it was it was a phenomenal time. Uh, and yes, we probably overtrained, but we didn't have exercise science to really reflect on to know whether that was just too much or not. I was looking on our message board. People were posting <laughs> questions there for you. And one of the questions was, I mean, back when you were competing, there wasn't really a professional career. Like people couldn't really be professionals. But someone says, if there was professional running, do you think you could have extended your career as a 5K runner? Could you have moved up to the 5K based on your background? Or, or, or do you think, you know, maybe you were too tired from all that mileage early on or what? No, I think I could have. Uh, it would have made the big difference. See, in those days, for example, when you're reflecting on history here, when you look back in the 60s and early 70s, uh, you had to have a job on top of all the mileage that you're running. And quite, you know, honestly, holding down a job and having a family and running 100 miles a week and racing was a very difficult challenge. But I have a wonderful wife, Anne. We've been married uh, over 50 years. Uh, and she was very understanding. And so she was very supportive. And that's a factor in all of this, being able to balance all of that. But yeah, that was a challenge. I, I'm, I'm assuming it would have allowed for a longer career. Uh, so, you know, but well, we don't have an answer to that question because that wasn't an opportunity. And a lot of your times, Jim, came on either cinder or dirt or clay tracks. It wasn't sort of the synthetic materials we have today. I think the spike technology was primitive compared to sort of the spikes they wear now. And yet you're still running times that would be competitive with anyone in the United States. You know, 351.1 for the mile and 144 for the 800 yards. 80 yards was about 144 for 800 meters. What do you think you could have done time-wise with, you know, with all the modern amenities in terms of training, shoes, and tracks? Yeah, John, let me interrupt here. I'm going to read directly from the message board from a fan of yours uh, poster. Mr. Ryan, I saw you run 351.1 for the mile in Bakersfield at Bakersfield in 1967, where you literally led from the very from the first step of the race. The track was basically a dirt track, which necessitated spike shoes. I've always maintained that race, which you won by 50 to 60 yards, was the greatest mile ever run. How much faster do you think you would have run with pacers, a modern track surface, and today's improvement in shoes? I bet you could have easily run sub 345. Thank you. That's a very generous comment. <laughs> uh, I'm told, you know, by those who study this a lot more than I do, probably a second per lap. Uh, but you have to remember, too, that the track on which we were then running in Bakersfield was considered one of the best tracks in the world. It was a baked clay track, which means that during the day you flood it with water, the sun bakes it, and it becomes very fast. The only problem was the mile was one of the last races. And if you look at that race in old ABC Wide World of Sports footage, you'll see that I'm wandering around on that inside lane, especially, I mean, almost stepping on the curb because I'm having difficulty finding footing. So there's no doubt it probably could have been faster, but the circumstances could have been different. It was just one of those very special nights, again, an answered prayer, uh, easy race, one of the easiest races of my life when I finished. I felt like I could have kept going. Uh, but not every night unfolds that way. Um, you know, the surface of the track, let me offer this too, by the way. Uh, the surface of the track in those days was basically as a big clay in California or in the Midwest, just kind of a cinder surface. I think it allowed us to run longer uh, and more challenging training on surfaces like that because it was very forgiving. Whereas a synthetic surface, if you put your spikes or your flats on the surface, the torque transfers up your leg and it causes trouble potentially with your knees and ankles. Whereas in those days with the older cinder baked clay tracks, the torque was in the track with your spikes sticking in the, in the surface. So there were some advantages to the surfaces. Yes, they were slower, but they were kinder to your legs. 
Yeah, one of the things I noticed looking at your uh, your running log, someone posted 12 weeks of your training from the 1966 season. And it was very interesting that you had, I think, four track workouts a week usually, Monday, yeah. Tuesday, and then Thursday, Friday, which you know it struck me as a lot. But did that seem as a lot to you? Like, Did you feel like you recovered well from all of those sessions? I did. It was a gradual progression, though. Because if you go back to high school, it was the same thing. Part of it was that Coach Bob Timmons, who was my mentor, my inspiration, a visionary guy, uh, was a, we were downtown high school, and he didn't have options for a lot of other choices of sending you out somewhere uh, to run under the surfaces. And again, there's only a couple of coaches and lots of athletes and all the different events. So primarily we're focused on the track. And as time went along, the, the times became faster, uh, but that was just because that's, that's, that was a natural progression. But, you know, I felt, especially as I started working with older, more mature runners, that the key to running fast was speed. And, of course, the value there is on which days do you put it all out or other days when you're running somewhat fast but it's not near as demanding is the real key to it. So you do have some recovery. You're right. We were on the track a lot, but some of those repeats were a little bit slower that did give you some recovery, whereas, uh, again, some of them were so intense that you really were reaching as deep as you possibly could. It seemed like you did a lot of either between 80 and 120 meters, somewhere in that range. You were always doing drills to improve your, your sprinting speed there. That's correct, yeah. And then the other thing is I looked at a workout, and one of them, it was an 880, 660, 440, 330, and in between the reps, you would have hill runs, and I think they listed different exercises like put up, push-ups, sit-ups, chin-ups, you know, that sort of thing. I think that's crazy. Like these days, I I couldn't imagine any runner doing that. Was that common for you to do those sort of exercises in between reps of an interval session? It, it was. And let me go back a little bit further, Jonathan, if I may. <clears throat> Excuse me. When I first started running, I ran out for the cross-country team. Uh, the longest distance I'd ever run before was one lap around the track, which in my day would have been 440 yards. And so when I went out for the cross-country team, not knowing what it was all about, uh, and signing my life away that, you know, I'll do what the coach wants me to do and not hold him liable. We met in front of the gym. There were about 100 boys. <clears throat> and as we started leaving uh, the gym, heading up to a destination that I would find out later was a place called College Hill Park. Partway up, I asked one of the other runners, I said, just how far is it to this park? They said a mile. Well, I realized that was four times further than I'd ever run before. So we get up to the park and we do some wind sprints and some calisthenics. And I realized that's a warm up. Uh, I had never done that before either. So it was a real shock to my system in the very beginning in that the running for those first few weeks took its toll. I had shin splints. I was sore. I was tired. I even made those commitments that a runner doesn't always keep that I'll never do this again. Uh, but it was a gradual progression. So it wasn't like I was thrown into something that was overwhelming. Uh, but, yeah, in the beginning, you know, when you do repeats and we would do cables, the elastic cables on the fence in between as a rest. You just accepted it. The whole team was doing it. It wasn't just me. It was the entire East High track and field team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense if, if it was uh, normal. And clearly it worked for you. So, uh, you know, I, who am I to question anything? Um, I look at some of the results back then. You know, you were the first high school boy in the United States to break four minutes of the mile. You did it in 1964. You did it again a few times the next year, including, you know, the high school record that stood for a long time uh, of 355 but and then following you we had Tom Danielson did it or Tim sorry Tim Danielson did it and Marty LaCorey did it so yeah. it was fairly 
common, I would say. You, you sort of broke the barrier, and there was, three, there was a guy every year, sort of the best guy through the, the 60s. And then there was a long drought from 1967 until Alan Webb in 2001. What do you think happened in between that it went from being sort of commonplace after you broke that barrier to having that such a long drought? You know, I don't, there's no simple answer, but I would reflect on that by saying this. There became a trend of thinking that if you ran that well early on, that you would ultimately burn out and that you would never it, it reach your full potential. And the only one I think in those three that really had that kind of a pitfall was Tim Danielson. But Marty ran well, I ran well, but there became that thought that it was just too much too fast. And again, it took years for that to happen. Alan Webb opened the door again, and then you started seeing more high school four-minute miles. Uh, because there's a, there's a realization that it's just a progression. If you've done the work, it'll happen. So the beginning was fear that it might be an early into your career. Yeah, I think people... You know that that fear may may be dissipating these days because we've seen another spate of Americans have started to do it. Grant Fisher did it a few years ago. Lucas Vosbikas. I mean, he got he got injured, but you've seen a lot of top American high schoolers. Drew Hunter has had a lot of success. He broke a four minutes several times a couple of years ago. And of course, in in Norway, you've got the the Ingebrigtsen brothers. Jakob was the European champion in the fifteen hundred. Uh, and the 5,000 at age 17 back in 2018. So I think that stigma might be removed a little bit now. So I might add this to Jonathan. I think one of the problems that was in those days was the fact that just thinking about running that fast was a problem. Uh, because when you're experiencing, say, running a 410 mile, and as I did when I ran my first mile at 432, my head hurt, my legs hurt, my lungs hurt. And I couldn't experience, not only because I didn't hadn't done it, but that it could possibly be faster. The coach Timmons would gradually bring me along. In fact, I'll pause for just a moment in this. On my fourth high school race, uh, after four races, I lost my first high school race and didn't lose another one. On my fourth high school race, I'm driving or riding with the school bus from Kansas City back to Wichita. And Coach Timmons was one of these visionary, wonderful men who, you know, took not just me, but let's say the entire team at different points to try and inspire and encourage them. So on the bus back, there was always an empty seat up front. He would bring one of each one of us one by one up in the front of the bus, and he would visit with us about our performance for that day, but then also challenges. On this occasion, I'd run 421, so I was getting faster. And he asked the question, he said, how fast do you think you can run, Jim? And I thought, well, you know, on a good day with the wind behind my back, which on a track can't happen because you've got an oval track. I said 419, thinking that was a pretty brave, you know, suggestion, a goal. And without saying any pausing, Coach said, well, I think you can be the school record holder. Well, I was a young runner, but I remember seeing in the gym the name of Archie San Romani Jr. in his time of 4082. I thought, how do you, how do you run from 421 to 408? How is that possible? And then Coach Timmons explained, he said, you know, it was a progression. In fact, I think you can be the first high school boy to run under four minutes. This is after four races. So he began bringing me along, thinking and praying and working towards that goal. And I think that I know that was important for me. That's one of the things we stress in our, our running camp, RyanRunning.com. You can go there and learn all you want to about our running camps. In fact, we've gone this year from an actual running camp to, an, uh, if you will, a virtual camp online because of the uh, coronavirus. But Coach Timmons was one of those men who was inspirational, uh, challenging you to go to your best. And I think that sometimes is probably as big a barrier as the physical part is the mental aspect of it, thinking that it's possible. Well, that, that's super impressive because I think now, even telling a high school athlete now, oh, I think you can break four minutes on the mile, that takes a lot of 
you know, uh, faith for, with a coach. And for him to do it then when you hadn't run, you know, faster than 420 and when the high, no high schooler had ever done it, when it had only been 10 years since anyone had broken four minutes in the mile. I mean, that was an extraordinary leap of faith on his part, but obviously that faith was, was well rewarded. Yeah, it was. And, and that's been a big inspiration, a big important part of what we do in our camps. And I'll emphasize it again. You can go to our Ryan running, ryunrunning.com. It's a virtual camp this year. So, you know, you can go online and it's going to be for the month of July. But I spend a lot of time talking and addressing that issue on goals. And, and you know, one of the aspects of it is being willing to dream that big dream. Another one is surrounding yourself with people who believe in you. You will always find people who say it's never been done. You can't do it. You're not going to be the first. But you want to find those people who believe in you. And that's what I spent some time on in one of the lectures of the online camp. And that's one of the things that Coach Timmons did so masterfully is that he would take you from where you were at that point to the next level, even though you might not believe it. In fact, let me me try this. When he gave me the goal of running into four minutes, I went back to the back of the bus and I sat there for the longest time, bouncing along when those days you didn't have, you know, any TVs or iPhones or anything, and just thinking, how's how's that possible? Well, I was willing to dream with him in his, what I call his dream. And uh, with less than a little over a year, I ran under four minutes for the first time, which that night after running in four minutes, I was back in my room and I was trying to sleep. I was tossing and turning. And the thought came to me, and I covered that in that part of the aspect of dreaming big. You have to take ownership. So that night, for example, when it was all over and I had run under four minutes for the first time, my thought was, I, I know there's some things that I could do a little bit better. And that's what ownership is, where you know that maybe you could put a little more effort in certain places and become even better. So that was my prayer that night, that I would take ownership. And ownership is a big aspect of continuing to improve because the coach can only take you so far. That was coach's goal, which is realized on that night. I shared it, obviously had the benefits from it. But to go to the next level, ownership is a huge aspect of that. Yeah. So, Jim, the first time you broke four, the Compton Relays in 1964, do you remember what you did to celebrate? <laughs> Not a lot. Uh, you know, it was late at night. The meet was, you know, I think 10 o'clock at night by the time I ran. You know, you you'd visit with people afterwards, you talk to the media, and then you try and absorb it all. This was just a phenomenal night in Compton, California. It was one of those moments that as I reflect on, I wish I'd maybe made some more notes uh, as to what actually took place. I do remember, though, in that race uh, that about 600 yards into the race, I got bumped by another runner. And part of it's because of my loss of hearing, and that's one of the reasons I fell in the Munich Olympics, is that I lost my balance. Fortunately, I stepped off on the inside of the track, regained my footing, but had to go lose my rhythm and get back to the back of the pack, work my way up towards the front with about 100 yards to go. I'm not in contention, but I'm not out of it. And yet that was the longest 100 yards of my life. I thought, where's the finish line? You know, you're tired, you're trying to get there. And once I got past the finish line, then there became this thought, just how fast did I run? And so... The announcement or announcer said that we, for the first time in history, we have eight men. I was considered a man then at 17, under four minutes. And the coach and I started counting was a seven, eight or nine. And we turned out, turned out the numbers were eight. And yes, I was the first high school boy to run under four minutes. But it was it was a special night. And yet I went back to the room and went to sleep and got ready the next day for the next training session. It was a natural progression. And only over time would the significance of that become even more uh, understandable. I heard you say that you you lost one high school race. Do you remember who beat you? And did you ever run into him later in life and say, hey. I did. Like, what did he end up doing? 
Uh, it was a guy named Charlie Harper. He went to Wichita North High School. And to set the scene a little bit, before the race started, uh, I was not even the best miler on our team. In fact, my first time mile was 538 in the fall of 1962. So it wasn't like I was lighting everything up in those days. It was during the cross-country season. So our, my first track season came along, and I was I was very disappointed that it was only a mile. Kansas in those days did not have a two-mile race. It wouldn't be for years for that to happen. Cross-country is two miles. And since I finished sixth in the state meet and was the best on the team at two miles, I was thought, wow, two miles. I'm, I'm a two-miler, not a miler. So we had a time trial, and I was third in the in the time trial, 4.52. Not, not exactly fast, but the best at that point for me. We get to our first meet, which is about 10 days later, and I, I, you know, I knew a mile was four laps around on the track. But I went to the senior and I said, how do, you, how do you run a mile? What, what strategy do you suggest? And they said, well, just go with the leaders and then with a half a lap to go, you outsprint everybody else. And I thought, well, you know, that sounds good. So here we are. The race is developing half a lap to go. And I start to sprint. And by the way, it was a crowded field. We had eight schools, three from each school, 24 guys on the starting line. If you can reflect on that, it's huge. So half a lap to go. I'm starting to sprint. And so this guy beside me who was in red and white jersey. So we share the lead all the way to the finish line. I kind of, I'm doing a runner's, not in a runner's pose. In other words, I get to the finish line. I don't lean. I just run through. He leans and wins. And so I'm on the, you know, past the finish line in a runner's pose. My hands are on my knees. I'm gasping for air. And I'm thinking, wow, why do I, why do you want to do this? Because your head hurts, your lungs hurt, your legs hurt. And one of my buddies came over with an old stopwatch in those days, not the digital, but just an old stopwatch, stuck it under my face. said, look at your time. 432, that's 20 seconds faster than what you ran 10 days ago. And all of a sudden, everything started to feel pretty good. Legs didn't feel so bad. And then one of the other guys ran up and said, you know who you lost? I said, yeah, that guy in the red and white jersey. Do you know who he is? I said, no, he's the defending state champion at one mile. So I think I floated back in the school bus. Uh, But I remember his name, Charlie Harper, a wonderful guy uh, who I've met through the years. Uh, And the last time I saw him, he was in Nashville, Tennessee. He was coaching high school. Uh, and I kept in touch a little bit with him that way. But, yeah, it was a moment you remember, and I remember his name and the school and uh, forever etched in my memory. I'm sure he must remember that now as well, being the only guy to beat Jim Ryan in a, in a mile in high school. Yeah. Uh, I, I was reading uh, while you guys were talking, I was reading Bob Timmons' uh, sort of obituary in the New York Times. So, he, I mean, he ended up being the Kansas coach and being a, you know, winning NCAA titles there. But it says briefly that he went to Oregon. So, did, did he did he keep, coach you remotely? Like, how did that work? As well, well, how that worked is that my junior year in high school, uh, he had decided that he would go to University of Kansas as an assistant. And as a result of going, you know, that that was his alma mater. He would like to have stayed there. He wanted to, you know, become the head coach at some point, but the job wasn't available. Well, at that point. A job at Oregon State opened up during my senior year, and uh, my my intent was to follow Coach Timmons. So he has accepted the job. He's on the way out and driving out to uh, Oregon, to Oregon State. And along the way, the news comes out that the head coach at Kansas, Bill Easton, has been fired. So Coach Timmons is offered the job. By the time he gets to Oregon State, he asks if he can be released from his uh, coaching responsibilities and contract at Oregon State. They released him. He went back to the University of Kansas, and I ultimately signed with the University of Kansas. So that's a little bit of the story behind it. He never did actually coach at Oregon State. He almost went there. I almost went there. Uh, but instead, in, uh, as, as at my senior year, I did sign on to the University of Kansas, and, of course, that's where my uh, my future would be. So you would have followed him? You would have been an Oregon State beater? 
I would have I would have followed him because the program that we were under while it was very demanding was also very successful. I had a little bit. I had a different coach my senior year in high school, uh, but I, I was so committed to what Coach Timmons was doing, though it was very demanding, that I wanted to follow him just to see where this journey would continue. Well, that would have rewritten track and field history. That having you out at Oregon State with the Oregon teams <laughs> also being good. I mean, it would have been very interesting. It, it, it may have rewritten history, but what I realize now for the time period that we did live in Eugene, I'm not sure I could have lived there. I suffer from exercise-induced asthma. And as soon as the rain stopped in Oregon, which was the case in 1971, uh, the pollen becomes so intense in that Willamette Valley that it couldn't breathe. So we had moved and moved on down to Santa Barbara, California. So it could have been a disaster for me uh, just because of the pollen issue. But staying in Kansas, as cold as it was, uh, and, you know, it worked out really well, and I was accustomed to the weather back there. Yeah, is that where you were based for most of your, I guess, professional or post-collegiate yes. career in Kansas? Yeah, yeah, I did. I was there. Uh, that's, yes, that's exactly right. Everything there. It's where my wife and I were married, and actually we were married in Bay Village, Ohio, but we lived in Eugene, rather Lawrence, Kansas, for a number of years, and then, uh, you know, everything progressed from there. So you, you talked about balancing like post college tr- training with a job. Like, wh- what type of job did you have to have back then? Well, that was that was always a challenge. Now in college, it was a matter of juggling the, the studies, and it was challenging in that you were tired in the evenings when you're supposed to study. So staying awake was a challenge, but you didn't have trouble sleeping. Uh, so you know, but you were up early the next morning, training hard twice a day. But yes, once I, I finished with the collegiate career. Finding an understanding employer was a very challenging process. However, during my college days, I ended up training and receiving a degree in photojournalism. And so I found something that I could do with an understanding uh, boss, and I was able to continue running with my job as a photographer, photojournalist. So what sort of things were you shooting? Um, Sports mostly. Uh, Eventually, I progressed to the point that I was covering uh, all kinds of sporting events, football, basketball, uh, track and field. In fact, an interesting story you might find uh, had it tucked away in history. Uh, in 1972, I was actually under contract for Sports Illustrated doing a story on pre-Olympics athlete, pre-Olympic athletes for the Olympics. And it was about halfway through the assignments shooting different people. Prefontaine was one of them. Uh, and then I got a call from the U.S. Olympic Committee and they said, we want to have a discussion with you. So I sat down, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, sat down with him and he said, you know, Jim, uh, the Olympics don't allow professionals. And I said, well, yeah, I understand that. And he said, do you realize that you are a professional photographer? And I said, yes, I have a degree in it. Uh, I've won some awards. Well, you need to understand that if you want to compete in this Olympics, you must give up your professional photography and find something else to do. And, and boy, was that challenging because it's tough enough to find a job. So I went to then the Buddy Bloodgood was the, uh, the Sports Illustrated head photographer, and he released me from the contract but that's how silly some of the rules were in those days, trying to make a living. And when you were doing a living, making a living based on a talent God had given you, and then they take it away from you because you're a professional. I asked him the question. I said, what about the professional soldiers from Kenya and Russia and other places? Like, well, that doesn't matter. Here, we make sure you're an amateur. And I thought, wow, this is really an inconsistency. But it was challenging. Speaking of crazy rules, so when you were a freshman in college, right, the freshman couldn't compete for the team. Is that, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So I was trying to figure out what you did every year in college. It looks like um, – so 66 would have been your freshman year in terms of track? That's correct, yes. 
So you can't compete in college, but you did set a world record and were named Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year. So they think it's too hard for freshmen to compete in college, yet you're named the sportsman for the, the best sports athlete for the entire United States of America, which is kind of ironic, right? The, well, they've changed the rule, obviously, since then. And it wasn't long after that. Yeah, it was, it was, actually, it worked to my advantage in that I couldn't race that often. And when I did race, I really had a chance to rest. And that's why, for example, I can't remember the exact timeline. I think it was uh, April at then the Coliseum Relays in Los Angeles. Uh, I, was, I had the chance to compete. Uh, and I didn't want to run in a mile because I, was, I, I wanted to change it. So I ran in two miles. Uh, and that became the American record for two miles at 8.25.2. So it gave me the opportunity to rest a little bit more, race a little less frequently, and then ultimately to lead to that time in Berkeley at 3.51.3, which is, by the way, where I met my wonderful wife, Anne, who was in the stands, uh, who came down and, and asked for an autograph, and I gave her uh, the stiff arm, if you will, saying, how about later? Well, fortunately, later is on a blind date, and we've been happily married for over 50 years, so... It was a phenomenal year, and uh, you know, as an answer to that prayer way back in junior high, dear God, if you got a plan, I'd appreciate it if you show up in sports. And boy, did he show up! In fact, now and then, I, I pinch myself thinking this actually happened to the skinny kid in Wichita who was cut from the jerks baseball team, and now he's on you know three Olympic teams, and then different things like ESPN athlete of the century. Just phenomenal things that I, I have a hard time fully understanding. Wait, so let's hear this wife story again. She comes down for an autograph, and you say, no, let's go for a date? Well, no, that – okay, so here's the story. When it was done, when the race was over, because I was the first American uh, since another great Kansan by the name of Glenn Cunningham some 30 years before to hold the world record at one mile, the the interest was uh, phenomenal in those days. You know, you had media, all kinds of media, radio, TV, uh, newsprint. Uh, after about two and a half, three hours of answering questions, I was kind of tired and so I went to the tent where all my warmer gear had been stored, only to find that it had been stolen. So I wasn't in the best of mood as I went across the grass field heading back to the dormitory where the U.S. team was being housed. And up ran this attractive girl and her, uh, with her brother and, and said, hey, uh, how about an autograph? Well, she did say something about going to that other school, Kansas State University. I went to the University of Kansas. And I said, oh, you know what, how about later? And I went on. Fortunately... Thanksgiving of 1966, a mutual friend from Kansas State University asked Anne if she, when she, if she was going to Wichita, if she'd like a blind date. And she said yes, and she said it wouldn't be a blind date for me because I've met him before, but that's how it all began, uh, Thanksgiving of 1966. So there you go, the story behind the story. So you got your – was that your first world record? You got a world record and, and a wife all in the that, it was a good. It was a good year. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I want to go forward to um, 1968 when you earned your Olympic medal, silver medal in Mexico City. And the big thing everyone talks about was those Olympics were held at altitude uh, over 7,000 feet, which is just, you know, it's, it's a lot for any distance runner. We know that. And I'm, I'm curious, when you first heard that the Olympics were going to be in Mexico City, and they were going to be at altitude. What were you thinking at that point? Well, I first heard of that in 1964 when I was at my first Olympics because at the end of the Olympics, they announced where the next Olympics are going to be. And by the way, let me reflect on this. When I went to my first Olympics, I was such a rookie that I discovered they held them every four years. And I thought, well, maybe I can come back in four years and run again. So it was, it was such a phenomenal transformation in my life. But again, um, Tokyo, they announced Mexico City. At that point... You know, no one 
very few understood the uh, impact of altitude. But two years into it, I think it was 1966, at the NCAA championships in Cobo Hall in Detroit, uh, a group of athletes along with Jack Daniels, some of the athletes were Tom Von Rudin, Wade Bell, uh, came to me uh, after the race and, and asked to have breakfast together. So we ate, and they said, you know, Mexico City is going to be different than Tokyo, and you're going to be at altitude. And well, at that point, the thought was, at altitude, it was going to be physical, but more psychological than anything else. And I said, yes, I recognize it was a problem, and that I would work through it. And, you know, I really didn't understand completely at that point, did not very many of the distance runners did. So Jack challenged me to come through Alamosa, Colorado, where they were cha- training. Uh, and that began uh, actually in 1966. I would have, yeah, 1966. I went through Alamosa, Colorado, after having run in Los Angeles, a 353 mile, I think it was. And so I was in good shape. So I land at the airport in Alamosa and uh, take a short run that night. The next morning, we're going to run a time trial, so to speak, just to see what the altitude was like. So I thought, well, I'm a little tired. And let's set a reasonable pace. 410 after 353 shouldn't be too bad. I made it the first 600 yards, and I thought I was going to die. I couldn't breathe. Uh, And they all came over and said, well, this is altitude. Welcome. So I thought, you know, I can't not finish this thing. So we set up a time trial, and I think I ended up running about 425, and I thought it was the end of the world by the time I got there. And all of a sudden, the realization that altitude was going to be a huge problem. So I began going through uh, Alamosa at altitude as often as possible during the summers, uh, doing what I could to train. And yet now we know from uh, many others that if you live at altitude, you're great, but you really take, it may take 25 years uh, for a total adjustment, or if you're born there, you'll adjust to it. But the phenomenal, I mean, the, 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 the weight of it all was huge, and we understood finally after time that the altitude athlete was given an enormous advantage. And I, I wasn't alone in that. If you look at the Olympics, everything from 1,500 meters on in, in Mexico City was won by an altitude athlete. Yeah. Did, did you think it was unfair? Do you think they should oh, have sure. made a rule? That- as, as, as I understand, looking back and reading about it, uh, Avery Brundage, who was then the uh, International Olympic president at that point, has seen races in Mexico City and maybe back in 1956 for the Pan Am Games. And as I understand, his response was, I didn't see anybody die, so let's host the Olympics in Mexico. And so that became kind of the background or the background for why the Olympics were held in Mexico. Uh, it was a huge mistake, should have been someplace else other than altitude, but it's there. And to be honest with you, I ran one of the best races of my life, have a silver medal. I'm honored to have it. Uh, and I reflect on that race as one of my best races ever. Yeah, so I, I'm looking at the race. I mean, this is seven thousand something feet of altitude. Seventy three hundred feet. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't. I don't have the right computer in front of you. So maybe John can figure that. John, do you have the altitude conversion for the NCA? But you run a three thirty seven fifteen hundred, which is basically you know a three fifty six mile. I wonder what that would convert to at, at sea level. It would probably be uh, quite a bit faster. That's for sure. So 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 the it, here's the situation. See, at altitude, even with my training going well and training with some of the best in the world, some of the best Americans at altitude in Alamosa and then Flagstaff, Colorado, Flagstaff Arizona, uh, I could not break three minutes for three quarters, which was going to be needed if you're going to run at the Olympic level. And on that day in 1968, we were under three minutes. It was so fast in the very beginning that everybody went much faster earlier than they thought they would. In fact, a kind of an interesting story, Ben Gipcho was pressured by the Kenyan Athletic Association to set a very fast pace 
to take everything out of our legs for those of us who are sea level runners, and it worked well. And, you know, I mean, Kip may have won at sea level, but it would have been an entirely different race because you've got a great runner from Germany, Bodo Tumo, the three of us together. I don't know who would have won. It would have been a fascinating race. But Jet Cho came up to me uh, several years later, and he said, Jim, I want to ask your forgiveness. I said, what in the world for? He said, well, I should have not done what they pressed me into doing, and that was to go out exceptionally fast to take everything out of all your guys' legs. And I said, well, Ben, that's history. I don't hold anything against you. He said, yes, but I do want your forgiveness. So I gave it to him. But I thought that was an interesting response on his part, knowing that he'd been pressured to do something, knowing how it would impact everything else. Yeah, Mexico was an interesting place to have the Olympics, terrible place to have them. Uh, I mean, the country's good, all that. I don't mean that, but the altitude of 7,300 feet is a phenomenal advantage for an altitude athlete. Well, Robert, you asked me to look up the time. The altitude conversion app I have on my phone, which is modeled on the NCAA conversions, Jim ran 337.89 in that final. It converts to, according to this app, 329.09, which (laughs) to run that in an Olympic final is just incredible. And then you think about, that also puts in context, Kip Kano ran 334 in that race. You know, yeah. t- to do that in an Olympic final, it, what you guys did was was really incredible. It would have been phenomenal. I have two questions about 68. You finished second. What is your what is your first reaction? Darn, I didn't win or, hey, I got a medal. Like, like, what was your mindset going into the race? And can you take us through the race? Like, when did he break away? Stuff like that. Well, first of all, we had – and I, this is one of the things I share in our camp. Again, RyanRunning.com. When I talk about dreaming big, one of the last points that I make with them is never, never, never give up. And so that's an aspect of this race that I use in my talk because the morning of the race after, in those days, it were consecutive days, preliminary, semifinal, final, no rest days. So after the second day, as I getting ready for the morning of the race on the final day, I got up and I thought, I'm going to die. I didn't feel well. It was altitude and it was just everything else. And so I went over to the warm-up track and began warming up. And I went to then who was uh, the U.S. distance coach or middle distance coach, Ted Hayden, University of Chicago, Loyola, and I said, Coach, I'm not sure I can even run this race. I feel horrible. And he just listened. He said, well, you know, it's hard to get here. Go ahead and finish your warm-up, and why don't you get out there and let the gun go off and just see what you can do. So I had to readjust my thinking from, oh, my gosh, I'm not sure I can get to the starting line to at least let's get to the starting line. It was the impact of altitude on me was, like many others, it was not very positive. So we get to the starting line, and I thank Ted Hayden for helping me get there. And the gun goes off, and immediately Ben Jeptail goes out. What was at that point a suicide pace? Today it would be somewhat normal, 56 seconds. But 56 seconds at altitude is just unbelievable. And I remember going through the first quarter just close to 60 seconds, and I knew that was right on the edge of what I'd been able to accomplish at altitude. So I thought the pace was okay and hoping that they would come back to me. The half was around three uh, under, a little under two, and the three quarters was under three as well. So I knew that I was running well and that it had to be the race that I would run because once you get into oxygen at late, late in a, a mile, so to speak, there is no return. I mean, the return is sitting down on the side of track until you recover and then getting back up and running. And you can't do that, obviously, in a race. So I was trying to stay within my range, recognizing that Kip was way out there and, and might be able to catch him at the finish, but I wasn't sure. And so during the last lap, I think I was fifth starting on the last lap, as I passed each of the runners, I think one of them was uh, John Wetton from England uh, and then became 
Harold Northport from Germany, and finally Obudo Tumors. I went by each of them. And this is because when you're, as an experienced runner, you can tell when there's some fight left in that runner. There was no fight. They were absolutely spent. And I was hoping that maybe I could catch Kip, but as you can know, I mean, the race results were that I couldn't. But it was it was the best race I could run that day at altitude. I was honored. And when I finished, I could accept the results because I knew that I had run a race that was beyond anything I'd ever accomplished at altitude. And the time bore that out. Uh, in fact, when I finished, I remember getting past the finish line thinking, oh, my gosh, where i got to sit down. And unfortunately, I did find a chair to sit down past the finish line. That was a huge mistake. And I know that from experience, and runners do as well. Never sit down after a race even. It's like an overheated car. Keep it going. Eventually, you'll cool down. And I, I couldn't get any air. I was suffering from a lack of oxygen. And all the officials around me, they spoke Spanish. They didn't speak English. And they kept asking for some help when they couldn't do anything. So after several minutes... I finally got enough oxygen in my system. I stood up and, and walked around a little bit, started feeling better, and went to the to the award ceremony. And quite honestly, again, I reflect on that as one of my greatest races ever, but one that was totally, I wouldn't say totally, but often misunderstood, especially by uh, many people in the American public. When I, when I came back from uh, Mexico, <clears throat> my hometown newspaper, then the Topeka paper, wrote a headline, Ryan only wins silver, only gets a second uh, second place. I thought, wow, I'm honored to have that second place. But that was kind of the level of understanding of people of altitude, what altitude was like racing at that distance and at that altitude. I was doing a little bit of research, and I was trying to figure out what you did at the NCAAs every year. And I looked up 68, and I didn't see you in there. And then we, John and I figured out that you had mono that year. So that seems like another untold story. So you ended up doing, you know, amazingly well, 337 at 7,000 feet, winning a silver medal, but you had mono in the year. So, you know, obviously 68 is the big year. To tell us about that, when did you get the mono? How how much did that impact you? How much did you miss? Well, I also pulled a hamstring earlier in the spring. We were doing wind sprints after a hard workout, and I pulled a hamstring. So put that on top of it. So it was a very, very challenging year in that sense. And again, I thank God for the experiences I had before, for the coaches I had along the way. But I like to share with young runners that, you know, don't take your eye off the destination. Uh, you know, it's, failures, you know, it's temporary deter, detour to success. And so at that point, mono and a pull the hamstring. But I kept looking and praying for getting at least through the Olympic trials. And in those days, boy, it was an interesting time because even the officials of of the United States, many of them didn't understand altitude. So what do they do? They hold the first Olympic trials in 1968 at sea level in, in Los Angeles, that whoever made the top three would be, you know, considered on the team. And then, oops, we're going to have a final Olympic trials at Lake Tahoe, which would really be the best measure of those who could handle altitude. So it was a long summer. I think I finally, I, 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 I ran in May at the Institute, you know, the Big Eight Championships, and I thought I was going to die because at that point, mono was very apparent. Blood test was showing that, uh, that I stopped running right after that until I think it was the 1st of July I was able to start running again. Uh, so there was a long period of time during which time I spent in Flagstaff trying to adjust to altitude and uh, began running as soon as possible, but not until the 1st of July. So I had until September to get ready uh, for uh, altitude. And, you know, we had I had some great guys to train with. And uh, Flagstaff, I had George Young and Billy Mills and Conrad Nightingale. Uh, to train with. So the four of us uh, would work together when I got a chance to train with them, not early on because of the mono, but it was a challenge. And it's something that anybody that's ever had mono, uh, you know, you have that very tired feeling, which is not unusual for a distance runner, 
But as I began training, I was tired, and I kept thinking, oh, boy, I just pray that mono is not coming back, and it didn't. But it's one of those things that everybody, anybody who's ever had mono, to a certain extent, has to battle through because you're wondering if maybe it's coming back again a second time. But in my case, again, in answered prayer, I got through the Olympic trials uh, in uh, Lake Tahoe and made it through uh, the three rounds for the 1500. Wow. So you weren't running at all, not even running, using mileage in June? You're just hanging out and flexing? Wow. No, they wouldn't let me. They wouldn't let me do anything because they, they they needed to get the blood back to the right level. It was such terrible condition at that point uh, that they had to be recovered before they would allow me to do anything. So you mentioned Billy Mills. That was one of the questions people had on the message board. I mean, you were in Tokyo in 64 in high school as part of the Olympic team. He wins the gold medal. He's a Kansas alum. Yes. What was your relationship with like with him? How much time did you how much did you interact with him? Stuff like that. Well, he was one of my roommates uh, between uh, making the Olympic team and going to Tokyo. So I got to know Billy as a as a friend. And so I remember a couple of days before the 10,000-meter uh, finals, uh, Billy was coming into the, the dining room in Tokyo, uh, and he was very excited about the workout he just done. I said, well, Billy, what, what, are you, what are you excited about? And he said, well, I ran my best 200 ever. 200, 220, and I think it was 26 seconds or something. I thought, wow, you know, I just kind of tucked that away. Well, as you know, if you watch that race, that was what made the difference was his final sprint. But it was that that particular workout that contributed to giving him the confidence to running so well in that final, the final stages of the 10,000 in Tokyo. I was in the stands when it happened. I was excited, uh, you know, an American winning 10,000 meters. In fact, if you followed it all during those days, a guy by the name of Dick Banks, who was the kind of the known track and field expert, was commenting on NBC. And because he got so excited about it, they fired him. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the all-time crazy stories because his call is so good. But back then, I guess it was a little too much. Nowadays, it would be viewed as understated. But did Billy, like, what was his, do you have any idea what his goal was in that race? I'm sure, sure, I'm sure it was to win. Because every runner who doesn't have that in the in their mind has given away the race before they start. And a lot of that is a matter of not giving in before the race starts. But obviously, it was a very high goal, and he realized it. So I, he didn't express that to me other than, you know, he was so excited about that one workout that gave him such a fast 220. Well, Jim, another one of your contemporaries was uh, Mahdi Lakuri. You had s- several great races with him. And one of the things, again, we're looking through your NCAA career, 1969, so the year you come back, uh, your senior year of college, after winning a silver medal at the Olympics, you face Marty, and Marty beats you in the mile at the NCAA Outdoor Championships. And yes. I'm looking at that, I'm like, oh, how'd that happen? And then I realized Marty was actually ranked number one in the world that year by Track and Field News. So it's it's just crazy yeah. to me that two Amer- the best, you know, two of the very best milers in the entire world are both competing in the NCAA. You wouldn't see that these days. But what are your memories of that race and that year against Marty? Well, let me go back a little bit. In 1968, the, you just, we talked about the mono and the preparation. I had to reach so deep, so to speak, that I was phenomenally tired physically, mentally, spiritually, everything, so that when the uh, season came around for my senior year, I'd actually ask Coach Timmons if I could be redshirted because I was exhausted. And he didn't want that to happen, so that was maybe one of the few times I've ever had a big disagreement. So I went ahead and ran, and but my heart wasn't really in it because I was just still recovering from everything that took to get to Mexico City. And so as a result, during that spring, the workouts were good, but they were not what they were accustomed, what I was accustomed to. And I'd run well earlier on, but I just wasn't ready for you know that race. And 
Uh, Marty ran a great race. I'm thrilled to have helped the team and finished second, and he was on his way uh, to a great season. But it was it was a challenging time, uh, which I look back on now. I wish I'd had that time off just to recover uh, and get ready for. Well, you took a little time away from the sport after that that season, right? What I mean, what led to that, and do you do you think it was the right decision? You know, looking back on it, I did. Oh, it was the right decision, no doubt, because. I needed that break, and the time away was a year basically of doing nothing. Finished up my degree in college. Ann and I had some wonderful time together getting to know each other. We were just married. Uh, but it was it was a time that I, I needed. Uh, and, you know, earlier on, I think Robert asked a question about the pressure. The pressures were growing, and they were real, and you adjusted to them along the way. But that was a period of time where I needed the pressure to be lessened, and the way to do that was just simply step away from the track for a period of time. And and just 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 take it easy and enjoy being whatever you were at that age and what I was doing. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a challenging time, uh, one that was I wouldn't want to relive. And yet at the same time, that's a part of life. Well, you were certainly in the spotlight a lot more than uh, you know NCAA athletes these days. I think uh, if you you know if someone has a bad season, you know maybe it gets talked about in Let's Run dot com or our message boards, but. You know, you, you were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. You were winning Sportsman of the Year. So, you know, maybe if you had a down year, that there was a lot of att- attention from the media on you. Yeah, it was. And, and you know, kind of a, to put that into perspective, uh, and I looked at your message board, there was a lot of people there who remember those years. Now, they have to be more of my generation, if you will, to really understand and see all of that. Uh, but it was, a, it was a phenomenal time. In fact, just yesterday I received an email from, uh, who was, I guess, part of the press uh, team for the uh, IAAF uh, and asking a question about a race I'd run in Dusseldorf. His name was Olaf, and he asked me to reflect on it. He said, now, I grew up in Dusseldorf where this race took place as a child, and he said the real discussion was you ran 49.5 to 51.2, which wasn't in the last 300, 400 meters in the race in Dusseldorf. So I'm going to respond to that. But for him to reflect on that and for it to have such a sticking place in history, I think points to the level of interest there was in track and field back then and how it's endured during the times of you know growing in the sport of running. Well, actually, you mentioned that race in Dusseldorf. That is, that's been brought up several times on our message board because your last 300 meters in that race were, was just – I mean, I urge anyone – we should put a link to this in the show notes. You, everyone needs to watch the end of this race because – it looks like essentially that they've hit fast forward on this videotape. That's how fast you're moving. You close the last 300, I think. Unofficially, they had 36.4. And this is in a 338 race. It's not like you guys were running super slow to that point. I mean, people are saying this is among the greatest closes in history. What's your, what's your memory of the last lap of that race? Well, I just remember that I, I was running against who I thought would be one of the major contenders in the Mexico City Olympics, Bodo Tumler. And Jim Grello, again, a friend, was the other U.S. member racing against the West German team. And I wanted to keep it as close as possible if, and to keep Jim as a contender and maybe a higher scoring point. But when the 300 meters le- with 300 meters left in the race, I felt it was time to go. And so when I began accelerating, it was one of those rare moments that you have this phenomenal feeling, euphoric, if you may, that you just simply can't do anything wrong and you're so light on your feet that it just it exploded in a way that even surprised me. Uh, and I look at the footage now, especially the last 100 yards, and look at it, and I was, I was floating. It was so easy. I, I, I couldn't believe that it was happening to me, and I was very surprised that it was that fast. 
And yet at the same time, it is one of those moments when, you know, you train all season. In fact, I often tell our runners in camp, again, our phenomenal site, ryanrunning.com, that you, you race a lot, but you only have so many that you're really prepared for. My college days with uh, maybe relays and multiple events in a, in a race, in a meet, I might have 70 races. But by the time I, the ones that really count were the last six or eight of the season when you peak, you're ready to run. That was one of them. I had run just in London a few days before, run 356 against Kano. And I left there and went to Via Reggio, Italy from Dusseldorf. And I ran 313 something for 5,000, which is my best 5,000. Uh, so it was one of those times when you're ready to run, and you, it's amazing what the body can do when it's really fit. I'll go to 72. Not a lot of talk is, is you know, when people think of you, they think of 68. But you did go to another Olympics in 72, your, your third Olympics, um, you know, and, and tragically you were tripped and, and didn't get to, you know, see what you could do in the final there. What was the expectation for that race? I mean, you did run a th- heading into the Olympics. You, were, you I looked it up. You, you were sort of ranked sixth in the world in 71, um, you did run a 352 mile in early in 72. So were you still in peak fitness? Was a medal a realistic thing? Like, like did you think you could win that? Yes. A medal was a realistic thing. That time was actually run in July in uh, Toronto at the competition there on a very hard asphalt track. But it was where I was in my training, and so I was ready to run. And so going into Tokyo over there, I'm sorry, Munich, uh, I felt like I was ready, and I was the favorite to win the Olympic gold medal. Now, one of, when a couple of things that happened that were sort of interesting, why to this day I still don't know, but you seed the runners into the competition. And somehow the U.S. coaches seeded me in with the 352 mile as a 1,500 meters. And so that's why Kip and I were in the same race. And I went to the officials before, and I said, hey, this is not correct because that time is not a 1,500, but it's a mile. And they said, we're not changing things. So that's, that began... Uh, then I had the fall. I was tripped by another runner. Uh, what happened is uh, the race was developing. I saw an opening and started to move through it. The runner in front of me stopped. The guy behind me didn't, and down we went. So, But the story out of that that I think your listeners might enjoy most is that it had happened, I think it was two days, maybe three at the most, after the Munich massacre. And so tensions in the Olympic Stadium were enormous. Uh, you had military standing at every entrance and exit with a, a machine gun, you know, finger on the trigger, wondering whether you were a good or bad guy. So my race developed. I fell, and I got back up and finished the race. And somehow in the stands of, I don't know, 80,000, whatever it was, Anne got out of her seat and worked her way down, again, where she had the official uh, badges. I don't know, but she got from the uh, the seated the seated area down through the, uh, the the various people, the entrances and exits, onto the tunnel that went from the uh, competition track to the warm-up track. And so she got there at the same time I did with my inglorious last slow lap, uh, and we embraced each other. We had just become Christians, and so I, you know, we held each other, and I said a simple prayer, to God, this is what we expected. Wow, what do we do? Please help us. And no sooner had I finished that prayer... Then the officials came up and they said, well, you'll be reinstated. It was obvious you were foul. And then after several different moments, you know, questions and stuff, they all disappeared. And so we're both standing there and wondering what to do next. And no one offered to help anything at that point. And so we left the competition track. We're going back to the Olympic Stadium. And we walked by the ABC television booth. They were the ones broadcasting the Olympics. I thought, oh, I, I, 
I know a guy in here that can help me. So we went inside and I found Howard Cosell, if you may remember Monday Night Football. And I went into the studio and I said, Howard, I need someone to help write a petition for reinstatement. And this is what Howard said. He said, Jimmy, sit down. We're going to write a petition and you'll be right back in those Olympics. So, you know, he wrote out in his best uh, lawyer terms, a petition for reinstatement. We submitted it to the IOC and I, never, I wish I'd kept it, but they kept it. And their response was, why don't you come back in four years and try again? We met with them the day of the next round. And they said, well, come back in four years and try again. And, of course, my response as a young Christian was I needed to be kind to him, but I really wanted to clobber the guy. And I didn't, and unfortunately didn't. But what came out of all this was probably the most important thing for me, and that is you're going to have speed bumps in your life, and it doesn't always go the way you want it to. And so that day I started to learn the process of forgiveness, and it took a long time uh, because on that day, that day I was not happy with that official who could have reinstated me. Now they reinstate you if it's an early round like that. So fast forward from 72 to 1984 in the Los Angeles Olympics, my family and I are in the stands, and we're watching, and we happen to be in the cheap seats up high, and it's a final day. You've got 1,500 meters finals, the high jump, all the different wonderful events. And in those days, it was brand new. You had the great big jumbotron screens, and when they went up on the screen, everybody was large. And so I'm watching the high jump on the jumbotron screen. And and just at that point, and normally in the naked eye up that high, the, end of, you know, the person's about an inch tall. But on the jumbotron screen, they're very large. And so I'm watching the high jump, and just at that moment in the high jump, who would walk by but that official from 1972 on the screen. And there he is, you know, 20 feet tall on the jumbotron screen. And I know what I wanted to do in 72 wasn't a very nice thing. But in 1984, I had forgiven him at that point, and I wanted to go let him know that, of course, I didn't get to. But my point is, is that was a 1972 could have been a tragedy. And it was in many respects because I didn't get to uh, advance. But it gave me an opportunity to experience what Jesus can do in your life if you teach and learn about forgiveness and you're willing to exercise it in your life. So my life is richer and better. Would I love to have won an Olympic gold medal? Sure. In fact, many consider my career not quite complete uh, uh, because of that. But I consider it a, as complete as it could possibly be. And that was one of the experiences that enriched my life. Well, that's great. And actually, John interviewed, spoke to Seb Coe, I guess, what, a week or two ago. And he, Seb said he thinks you would have won that race. I forgot about that, John, right? He told you that last, last Oh, week. wow. He did say that in 1972. He said if you hadn't have fallen, Jim Ryan, he thought would have won the uh, the gold medal in the 1500. Well, he's he's very kind. I know that. So, Jim, we, we, we kind of promised you an hour, and we're probably at that or already over. Um, I'll try to get you out of here with a few quick questions. Um, I was wondering sort of, you know – both ends of the spectrum. Like looking back in your career, do you have one big regret? If you could change something, what would that be? And then maybe on the positive side, what do you view as your greatest accomplishment? Is there a single race or just something in general that you view as, as, the, as, as what you want? Well, I, I, let me, let me do this. I, after I became a Christian, I would sign my autographs, uh, go of God, the person's name, my name, and then I'd write John 3, verses 3 to 8. Now, you may think this is an interesting answer, and it is because it reflects on who I am as an individual and the things that I learned from all that, because athletics was wonderful for me. Running, it gave me a purpose. It was that simple prayer that a skinny high school kid prayed or junior high kid, and the, the, the results were phenomenal. But as a result of that, I started to think of myself as pretty special. And so now I'm going to fast forward a little bit. 
because eventually I would run for Congress. And I remember one of the questions that was asked by a reporter during my first campaign. They said, you know, Jim, you, you, you still sign your autographs. As I said, go off God, and I sign it with John 3, 3 to 8. You know, in politics, religion and politics don't mix. And I made a point to the lady. I said, they do in my case, because had I not have become a Christian, it was really very special to the extent that only after I became a Christian did I realize I could help other people and serve people. I got off that pedestal down to where I had an opportunity to help other people. So for me, that kind of summarizes my life and the opportunity to recognize that there's more to life than just running. I mean, I loved it. It was great. Uh, I reflect on, you know, one of the high points of my life was the 1972 Olympic trials, 1,500 meters. Uh, I crossed the finish line in an unusual display of emotion. Hands in the air it was the cover of Sports Illustrated that week. Uh, that was a moment of great reflection and, and appreciation of uh, everything that had been going on in that at that time. Uh, so it was, I, you know, it was I think the whole concept of what took place during all those years blended together was that I'm a better person for it, and I thank God for all those experiences. I had a quick question for you, Jim, as well. Do you do you still watch track and field these days? Do you have a favorite athlete to watch these days? You know, I don't necessarily have a favorite. Uh, you know, I follow it as much as I can. I mean, I was following Alan Webb and his progression when I was serving in Congress. He came into my office. We had some time to visit, and we've kept in touch ever since then. So, you know, those are moments of looking back and following the sport. I'm just disappointed there isn't quite the coverage that there once was. Uh, you know, we, I, in fact, in the 60s and 70s, if I can say this with some top four sports, you had professional baseball, professional basketball, uh, and then track and field was in there as well, football as well. But through the years, because we got more concerned by the authorities keeping everybody an amateur, how many wristwatches do you have as opposed to the reality of you need to make a livelihood, let's go professional, it hurt our sport and we eventually progressed in the wrong direction while professional sports took off and became even better as a result of that. So, uh, it, yeah, it's it's an interesting time, yeah. Did you watch Matthew Centrowitz win the gold medal in, in the Olympics? Olympics? Oh, yes. Well, there's a kind of an interesting story that goes with that. Uh, we've been following Matt, and I happened to have his uh, uh, email uh, prior to the start of that race. So I knew he was in the finals. So I ended up sending him a message. Ann and I put together a message in which we, we encouraged him and said, Matt, this is your opportunity. I can't remember exactly what we said, but it was really a, a moment of reflecting and looking back on it, uh, saying to him, hey, Matt, Here's some encouragement for you. Uh, he got it just before his final, and he reflects on it a little bit that he received that from me. I was just encouraging, look, become the first American, if you can, since 1908 to to uh, be the first American to run, uh, you know, the win the gold medal. So I, he texted back, thanks, you know, and, and, and then he wins the gold medal. So, you know, great, great experience. Well, I think he, he has a lot of respect for you, Jim, because you two were matched up actually in our tournament of the greatest American distance runners. And he said it was a, it was an honor to go up against you in the tournament. And he, he definitely mentioned the mix zone in his interview after the race, how cool it was that you got an interview with you before uh, that you sent him that email before the final and inspired him. I did, and I kind of remember now. I said, thanks be to God to who Jesus Christ always leads us in victory. And, of course, it led Matt to that Olympic gold medal. You know, it was a phenomenal race. Who would think he would lead from start to finish and end up uh, finishing in front, uh, leading that whole Olympic final? It was wonderful. 
Fantastic. Yeah, he ran 350, which is 13 seconds slower than you ran in the altitude of Mexico City almost 50 years earlier. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Jim's been very generous with our time. Robert, do you have anything else for him, or should we uh, let him go here? No, it's been it's been fabulous. Uh, thanks so much, Jim. I mean, it's really been an honor. I, I think in the show notes, we'll also link to a, a message board thread from 15 years ago when your sons were, ty- were typed, were, were, were talking about you. We kind of just started the website. I remember thinking... It was really cool that Jim Ryan's sons were on our message board. And now we've got, got you, the real man himself. So if I can say one more thing, I've, I've mentioned our running camps, and I do that in the sense that we normally have live running camps. We've been doing them since the 1970s. But because this year in the coronavirus, we've had to go to online. I want to encourage listeners, if they're interested, there's no age limit. Obviously, when you're camp, it's usually 13 to 18. But we have the entire staff putting this together in such a way that during the month of July, when they register on our website, ryanrunning.com, that I think they would find the lectures fascinating. I mean, I'm going to speak several times. We've got some really fine coaches. And our goal is, again, to help people to the next level with the experiences we've all had. So ryanrunning.com, come join us this summer. And, guys, it's been delightful to spend time with you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, this. I mean, and I just realized today is May 6th. It's the anniversary of Roger Bannister becoming the first man to break four minutes. So it couldn't have been a more, more appropriate day. And sp- yes. Speaking of Bannister, while we were talking, I was doing a little bit of research. That 351 one mile that we talked about, Roger Bannister, he, in his mind, that was the greatest mile ever run. He was very generous with his comments. I'll, I'll mention this in 1994. Uh, they had a reunion for Dr. Bannister celebrating that particular event. And they brought in all the living Milewood record holders. We all had a chance to interact with each other. Roger took us to the track where it all took place and explained, you know, how help, how he helped raise money for the new track. He even said in the old track, he knew where there was a spot on the track where a tree root was in the surface. And if he didn't put your spikes in the right place, you could actually stick your spike in the root and stumble. But he said, we changed all of that with the new track. And, it, and that's the one that he eventually ran under four minutes for the first time. So... Anyway, background there. Thanks, guys. Very good. Well, thank you.